Hello and welcome back to the Irish Football Fans Podcast. I'm Joseph McCarthy of the Irish Abroad website. I'm joined again by Mark Kennedy of Hawkeye Psychic and we're delighted to welcome a special guest to the show today, Gareth Maher of the FAI, who has a book out, Away Days, uh, 30 Years of Irish Footballers in the Premier League, and also Claire Shine's autobiography, uh, Scoring Goals in the Dark. Gareth, it's, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Mark. Gareth, so if we could start with away days. We're so used to the Premier League just being this part of our lives that it, the fact that it's 30 years, I think, has uh, passed a lot of people by. You know, when you sat down to to write the book, the players that you've interviewed in it goes right back to the very the start of the, the Premier League, right up to the to modern day. When you were sitting down to you know think about the players that you wanted to, to interview, the, did you want to cover the entire time span? Not, not really, um, Joe. Um, the original concept was just to focus on the the stories that we didn't really know about players that have played in the Premier League. I've always felt that the Irish contribution to the Premier League has been very undervalued in many ways, and I've always kind of had debates with friends and colleagues and stuff about where does Ireland rank in terms of the contribution to the Premier League overall. Um, and I kind of thought within that there were players that had really great stories. So it was originally about five or six guys that I was going to focus on. And then I looked at it and said, oh, the 30th anniversary of the Premier League is coming up. That'd be a nice way to tie in with it. And then it quickly morphed into, okay, let's do 30 different interviews with 30 different players. And then attach that to one per season to try to equal it out. So that it starts with Niall Quinn in the fourth season in 1992 and goes all the way through to Omar Bamadele in um, the last season to capture those 30 years. Um, so it, it kind of morphed into a project that I didn't really foresee it becoming. Stephen Ward was actually the first one I, I, I did and had the conversation with. Spoke to loads of different people, reached out to different players, and the order of it wasn't planned in that way, but it worked, I think it worked out well in the way because, as I said, it's um, a guy for every season. There are 30 players, 30 different stories, 30 different seasons, and I think each of those has its own little element of uh, surprise and mystique, I think. I think the flow of the interviews from each chapter, you do get a sense of the development of the competition. You know, right at the very beginning of it, it was still treated as the old first division. It was still, uh, you know, a club ethos. And as you move into like the late 90s, into the 2000s and, and, and right up to the modern day, it's becoming much more professional. And I think that some of that club atmosphere uh, might have been lost. I did read... Jay Gibbons autobiography recently and he was playing during that time and as he gets to the end of the book at the end of his as, he, as he's coming up to retirement there is a sense that uh, he misses what had been lost or what what was part of the game when he first started out when he was with Blackburn and with Newcastle as you're talking to each of the players did you notice any difference in how the interviews were going I was thinking in terms of as media training becomes part and parcel of coming through the academy at at some of the major clubs, you know, did you notice a difference between, say, how some of the modern players were responding in interviews compared to some of the the, the older pros? Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think it's an interesting point. Um, it's a bit of a catch twenty two for me because I'm I, I actually am a media officer in my day job, so like I'm possibly the gatekeeper rather uh, than the poacher in many ways. And I was a journalist before, so I, was, I, I know both sides of it. And I, I know the mentality of players 
who do stay guarded at times. So it's interesting in the sense of someone like Noel Quinn or Ray Houghton from the very early years of the Premier League who are kind of natural storytellers. And I think of that generation of Stuttgart 88 and Italian 90, USA 94, they've been on the circuit for basically the crux of their lives. They've had this second career where they've kind of retold these stories of those glory years of their careers. Um, loads of them working in the media as well. I think a you know, natural amount of um, Irish guys that work in the media. Then you're going into the media training and the kind of, the, the, as you say, Jay Given is kind of coming into that era. Uh, Richard Dunn, these kind of guys are a little bit more guarded. And then you come all the way through to the modern day where you have someone like Matt Doherty, who is the complete opposite to that word. There's no real filter with Matt in, in a very good, natural way. Um, and I think his chapter is quite interesting because he's so honest about his self-assessment. He's so honest about his position in the Premier League as an Irishman. He openly admits that he, he felt he let Jose Mourinho down and they didn't perform to the level that he could have and things like that. So it's a really interesting way of looking at it in terms of how they open up and how they speak. And I think I've been quite fortunate with this book in that I had a lot of relationships with the guys and built up a natural level of trust with them. And that kind of carries through a little bit in terms of, you know, footballers talk like, you know, this this guy's OK to talk to, you know, that sort of thing. But there are guys that I spoke to for the very first time in this book as well. Someone like Garrett Farley, who really intelligent guy, gone on to have a really great second career after football, uh, but really articulate about his footballing days as well. So it's a really interesting point, I think, about how they open up and how they speak to the media and let let people in a little bit. Too. And I think that was really the whole purpose of this, is that there's no point in me rewriting something that's from a Wikipedia page or that they've said in their own autobiographies or that we already know a story, just retelling that for the sake of tabloid fodder. I think I wanted to kind of tell something a little bit different. And for me, the real interesting stories is like Keith O'Halloran or Alan Moore or Paddy McCarthy, these types of guys that have great experiences, but also maybe, you know, something a bit different around Matt Doherty or Seamus Coleman too as well. You mentioned Gareth Farley there, and I think he's the most non-typical footballer you'll ever hear of, just for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, after he retired from the game, he trained as, as a lawyer. He's now working with the FA, I believe. Very interesting character, very intelligent, and uh, he'll always be remembered for the goal that kept Everton in the Premier League. You, know, you mentioned Alan Moore and Keith O'Halloran there, two players who went over to England very young, which obviously isn't going to be the case now after Brexit. What advice do you think these players could give You know, someone who's starting out in the game in Ireland here now, who has an ambition to, to play a, abroad? Do you think that their experiences of moving over to England at such a young age would translate to someone like, say, Carl Heffernan, who's you know moved to Milan? or someone who wants to play uh, elsewhere in the continent? Again, really interesting thing that happens now with Brexit that it's forced upon us. I think it's a really positive thing for the League of Ireland, and I think it's come at a really good time for the League of Ireland because we now have a natural pathway for elite players with the youth structures, the underage leagues in the League of Ireland. And I think one of the things, certainly from an FBI perspective, but also from uh, an Irish football perspective, is... In order to strengthen our league, we need to have our best players playing in the league. And if that means that younger players are staying around a little bit longer to get their education, I think that helps. So they'll have something to fall back on. The failure rate, as we know in football, is astronomical. Like 98.5% of academy players 
do not make it into first-team setups in the Premier League clubs, which is incredible. Now, I say that's shifted. Now, we don't really have the 15-, 16-year-olds going across. They're going across a little bit later. But if you look at someone like Dawson Devoy, who's left Bohemians to go to MK Dons, or Dara Bournes, St. Pat's gone to the same club, they're good examples of of kids who've built up a little bit of um, toughness by playing the League of Ireland. They've played men's football. They're not coming from underage football and going straight across into a U-team setup where they could get swallowed up and spat back out quite quickly. They're going as senior players who are ready for the challenge. Okay, that's League One level, and they need to rise up to the Premier League, but they have a better chance of doing that by playing at that level, I think. I think it's a positive thing for the players to, to have more time in the League of Ireland to develop. Um, also, emotionally as well, by staying at home with their parents, their friends, because I think that's one of the things that maybe the old school way of the disconnect of sending a young boy away at 15, 16 years old. And there's always that element of like, will they make it? How Are they homesick? All of those elements. They're kind of eradicated now. And it does open the door, as you mentioned, to further field, not just the Premier League, as, as you mentioned, Cattle going to Italy, Kevin Zeffi going to Inter Milan, a couple of guys going to Germany, Belgium, Holland, um, and that's good, and that opens the door as well for uh, different types of footballers. I think if you look at the League of Ireland, for example, we've we've had players um, who've gone across and they had to fit into the mould of the competitive style of English football. Someone, for example, Sean Williams, uh, who was um, with Sport and Fingal, he's someone that probably would have thrived in Belgium or France a lot more than he did in England. Now, he's had a good career, played a long time for Millwall, ended up getting into the Ireland squad quite late, but I think he probably would have been more appreciated at a more cultural style of play. Someone like Jack Bourne as well went to Holland, and even though we love the English football for that competitive edge, it sometimes isn't suited for the technical players. And I think in the book, the perfect example of that for me would be Stephen McPhail, who was a, one of our most technical, gifted midfielders, real box-to-box player. And he fitted into that Leeds team and then went on and had, after his illness, played really well for Cardiff then as well in, in the championship. Stephen is someone who's really underrated and he should have been really hailed as one of our better technical players. And I don't think he really has that reputation. And maybe that's partly because Stephen shuns the spotlight as well. He's that kind of shy character in that way, but... I think sometimes when we look at going across to England, it was the be-all and end-all for such a long time, and the Premier League is still the place to get you, but the Brexit has maybe opened the door to somewhere else now. Stephen McPhail, I remember him playing in that Leeds team, and I always used to pick him or try to sign him on Championship Manager as it was at the time. I think, and this is just my recollection now, so I could be wrong, that Terry Venable said that if you wanted to play in centre midfield, he had to be a bit more of a physical player that... <laughs> You had Roy Keane and Patrick Vieira dominating the Premier League at the time, and he wanted that kind of a player in his central midfield. And, well, that's not Stephen McPhail. That's not his game. Uh, he's the kind of player who probably plays in what we would now call the false nine position, you know, sits in front of midfield behind the strikers and sprays balls around. And anyone who saw him play for Cardiff knows that, you know, it was rare for him to miss a pass in a game. Having him in Ireland now and working with Shamrock Rovers and with the the academy setup that they have there, I think that's a massive benefit. Shamrock Rovers are really successful at the moment and all the focus is on the league success playing in Europe and, and rightly so. But 
I think something that's not mentioned as much is that it's also a very young team. It's a team that's been supplied by their academy. Gavin Bazuna is probably the most high profile of their, their academy graduates at the moment. But, you know, Kevin Zeffi came through there. And with that pathway at 16 years old to England now closed off, the emergence of academies like what they have at Shamrock Rovers, you know, it, it has to be seen as a positive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a good point about Stephen. Uh, and he's been part of that axis with Stephen Bradley and Glenn Cronin as well. And interestingly, all central midfielders in their playing days, Glenn a little bit different to maybe Stephen and uh, the two Stephen, Steve Bradley and Steve McPhail. They were more technically gifted. What well, Glenn was, and he admitted to himself, much more of a breaker up of play type of player. Uh, still very talented. Each of them had different experiences when they went across England. Stephen McBradley was lauded as the star pupil when he went to Arsenal. Stephen McPhail obviously came through the lead system at a time. There was a lot of Irish there. And as we just said, you know, played that uh, lead team that went on done really well in the Champions League. And Glenn was uh, at places like Chester that didn't didn't really amount to much. He came back and had a really good League of Ireland career. But it's interesting that they're, as you say, teaching the next generation of uh, Shamrock Rovers. And we have seen examples, of, as you have alluded to, of guys that have gone on and, and guys that are still coming through. Justin Ferris has another one that's already broken into the first team set up there. Really exciting young player. And there's many more coming through. And you see Andy Lyons, who signed from Bowes, had a great season with them. He's gone off the Blackpool. But you'd be very confident that they'll fill the gap there with someone like Andy Gowan for next season with some of the players that are coming through their youth setup. I think that's quite exciting to have that. With Stephen McPhail, it's, it's, it's an interesting one to say that Terry Venables didn't think he'd fit in because he did adapt his game, as I said. Like He was more of a box-to-box midfielder. And in, in the book, he talks about coming up against Roy Keane and how Roy kind of rattled him in one game and was testing him. And he had to kind of give it back, straight back to him, which he did. But he also competed against people like David Batty and Eric Bakken, Olivier Decor and people like that. Like, And he held his own for a long time until really that Leeds team kind of fell apart for financial reasons. And and then he kind of went on and sought a different chapter in his career. But I think that sort of resilience that Stephen showed is quite typical of a lot of the Irish players in the book and a lot of Irish players that have made it into the Premier League. Um, over the course of the 30 seasons, 197 of them. Um, that's gone up to 200 now this season with Kevin Bazunu, Connor Coventry and uh, Joe Hodge. And I think that's quite incredible to have that amount of players for a small nation when you consider other similar-sized nations to us haven't had anywhere near that impact. Okay, proximity could be one thing, but I think sometimes we maybe we underestimate ourselves as a footballing nation. There's been a decline in the numbers of Irish players in the Premier League over the last few years. And I think this year, unfortunately, we are going to see a record low of Irish players you know, making Premier League appearances. On the other hand, there's quite a few young players who are who've been named in Premier League squads. You know, Just this weekend, we saw James Furlong and Andrew Moran named on the South bench for Brighton. Joe Hodge has made his debut for Wolves. Given what you see around with the underage setup in the, in the national side, look, I don't think we're ever going to get back to the same kind of numbers we saw in the first few years of the Premier League. But do you think that we could start to, to challenge, say, the likes of France or Germany or Portugal in terms of numbers of players in the Premier League? I think we have to be optimistic about it. And I think we have to go back to look at the League of Ireland structure that the players that will go through more than likely won't come through the youth system of 
the Premier League clubs. They'll probably more likely come from Premier League, uh, League of Ireland clubs, I think, because they're grown men at that stage. They've got football behind them, and they're proven at that level. The likes of Everton taking a chance on Seamus Coleman from Sligo Rovers, like that's probably not really going to happen. Like that was a real gamble in many ways for them to do that. Even though Seamus like was quite clear at the time he was an up and coming player, he'd broken into the Ireland under twenty ones at the time as well. Seamus has just excelled, hasn't he? He's just gone over the course of his career, thirteen seasons in, and he's still going. And um, he's he won he's won back his place. Now with um, Nathan Parsons' injury, and I think he's done incredibly well to hold on to that place. And but I, I do accept that and acknowledge the dwindling numbers, but I think that will kind of come around. Sometimes these things can come in cycles as well. As you said, Andrew uh, Moran and James Forlong on the bench. James is someone who I think has a real bright future. Left back, it's a very specialist position in many ways, and he's a very attack-minded left back. You've got people all around. Nathan Collins has established himself as a Fourteen regular Gavin Bazunu as well at Southampton, um, and I think you look around and there's fellas knocking on that door. Evan Ferguson at Brighton too is, I think, not too far away from really getting a run of games there. Um, they just gave him a, a long contract extension as well. So I do think there will be people that can break the mold. Maybe we won't have it to the extent that it once was at Manchester United or Arsenal, Liverpool, the top clubs. But I think we have to be optimistic about what the types of players that we can produce. I think some of the players that we have come through the underage system, Andrew Oman Bamdele is a good example of this. Like, you know, he's coming from Nigerian father and uh, his, his upbringing at Leeds United before he went over to Norwich. Like, that sort of new intercultural uh, influence is, is definitely prevalent. Uh, Trent Connolly Doherty at Liverpool, for example, is doing quite well. And a lot of high hopes for him uh, after his UEFA Youth League ex- exploits of late. I think there's a lot of guys there that we should be ambitious about and hopeful for that they can be the new generation. It may not come overnight, it may be a couple of years, but I think bit by bit we'll get through and we just have to be confident in what we're doing in the League of Ireland to give them the right coaching and the right opportunities. Gareth, it's a pleasure to be on listening to you with Joe. Great insight. I suppose with the Book the UA days, I just wondered before, the Premier League here, uh, Gareth, is there any players you would like to speak to if there is a sequel? Popularity and all that good stuff. Uh, any players there that you would like to kind of speak to in an interview? It's funny. Um, there's guys that you'd love to kind of really go back in time and really f- find out a lot more about. Um, if we if we could jump into DeLorean and, and punch in the numbers there, like, you know, for a different era. But um, I'm currently re-listening to the audiobook of Bobby Moore's biography that Matt Dickinson did, which is... It's one of the best football books um, around. If anybody hasn't come across it, it's brilliant. And and in that, there's a lot about Noel Cantwell. And he's someone who I don't really know a huge amount, but of what I know of him, he was some player. And these are types of fellas, Liam Whelan at Manchester United, part of the Busby Babes. Like, these guys had real stories, like Charlie Gallagher, this is Liam Brady in his prime, these kind of guys. I'd love to really delve into that and it's it's a shame some of their stories haven't really been as widely told and I think the Premier League a lot of their generation would moan about the Premier League that in this cliche of like football did exist before Sky Sports started broadcasting the Premier League and I do kind of mention that at the back of the book but obviously it focus on the Premier League for, for the obvious reasons of it's the richest league in the world it's the most popular league in the world it's the most watched league in the world and Again, the Irish contribution to that. But I think there's so many guys with really interesting stories. 
And even of the 197, I've interviewed 30 of them in the book, but there's so many more guys in there that have unbelievably fascinating stories. I've gone on to have incredible careers, second careers, and uh, and have influence. We, we mentioned Garrett Farley there, uh, as Joe alludes to, but there's other guys there that are really interesting as well. So I think it's kind of endless in many ways. I think you guys could do a podcast on it that would keep you going for a while, like, you know. Just from a, a personal point of view, you know, obviously with the Twitter account and the website, I do look at player statistics quite a bit. You know, over 30 years, we've gone from, you know, the most important statistic being the scoreline to debates about how much a player is, uh, I'm not sure what the exact technical term is, but looking around our awareness uh, on the pitch. Do you have any thoughts on how you know, statistics like that and maybe how they're measured or how they're even presented has, has changed over the 30 years and what we're going to see in in the future. It's something that spoke a little bit about with Seamus Coleman in the chapter where he's talking about playing against Manchester City and and how you have to adapt uh, to playing against a team like that who are kind of in a very unique, modern way of way they play that every player moves different positions at times. Like, we saw with Sheffield United where they had the overlapping centre-backs, which kind of felt like a new thing. It seems every kind of five years or so, there's a kind of tactical shift that was in way back in the day. It was, you know, left halves and wing-backs and stuff like that and, and inside forwards. And then, like, for such a long time, seeing four four two, and then, you know, then we had the Rigo Saki era and the Libero and all this kind of stuff. And then it's four three three or four two three one or variations of that. But now it's Man City have kind of changed that in terms of positions. And I think one of the interesting things, we have all these different metrics, uh, rigidly pro zone, and then we have white scout and stat sports and all these different companies that can give you every single stat. But there's so many things that you just have to figure out in the middle of a game on the pitch because whatever amount of prep you've done, things happen quite quickly on the spot and you have to react to it. And Seamus talks about that. So he's marking Kevin De Bruyne or he's marking, you know, Haaland or something like that. And do I step close to him? Do I step off? Do I give him space? Do I pass him on to another man? Do I cut off the space? Do I swivel on uh, my hips to kind of close that couple of yards? There are all these things that a player has to learn over experience and have instinct and trust in themselves as well. So I think the metrics are really interesting and really helpful tool. One of the things I'm a little bit surprised that hasn't taken off in the Premier League, and I think this is definitely going to come much more prevalent, is position coaches. It, it happens a lot in other sports. And we do have it to an extent. You see a lot of people have now set-piece coaches, throwing coaches at Liverpool, to the extent where these guys are now hot commodities, where Arsenal... Um, Arsenal snapped up Brentford's set-piece coach uh, last season. It's no longer players who are in demand now. It's these guys that can give you that extra little edge. And I, I think that's going to change a lot more where you're going to have defence coaches, you're going to have forwards coaches, you're going to have individual, it could be down to full-back coaches and centre-back coaches. And you see it in the NFL, you see it in rugby. And I think this is going to be the next evolution of, of that where you look at the bench now, the backroom staff has swelled so much over the years, there's, you're dealing with probably a squad of really kind of 35 players, like considering the young players that be on the fringes as well. So the, the metrics and the um, all the insights that you can get are really, really important. I still maintain the most important one is still pass completion. I like if you don't take care of the football, you're under pressure. Like you know, so it's you're either guarding your own goal, 
you're either slowing play down or you're quickening it up or you're creating chances. So I think pass completion is still the most important. For me, I always look at the centre midfield of a team. If you have a strong core centre midfield, you'll have a winning team. And it's interesting in the book with Glenn Whelan, who probably has an unfair rap in the Irish consciousness of, of football fans a, a little bit maybe because he played a certain role within the Irish teams with, under Giovanni Trapattoni and Martin O'Neill. But he played almost 300 games for Stoke City and he had a better pass completion rate than Paul Pogba, Mesut Ozil, Paul Scholes, Scott Parker, these types of fellas who are synonymous with passing. Now, you could argue and say he only passes sideways or backwards, but that was his role and that's what he had to do. Like We praise someone like Rodri in the Manchester City team now for doing exactly the same role, but maybe gets a little bit more credit because he bursts forward and gets a couple of goals. If Glenn bursts forward, you would have heard Giovanni Trapattoni whistling at him. Like, you know, so there was no chance he was going to allow get past the halfway line. So I think sometimes we can overlook those players because they don't have the right image or the right reputation. I think Glenn deserves a lot more credit. And again, I go back to that pass completion rate. Uh, quite phenomenal what, what he achieved over the period of time that he did with Stoke. Yeah, I've been following Glenn's career like since he was in the academy setup, but Man City, because, because I'm, a, I'm a City fan, and there was a few other Irish lads there at the same time, uh, Stephen Elliott and Paddy McCarthy, uh, both of whom were into it in, in the book, and uh, Willow Flood was there at the same time, Brian Murphy in goals. I agree with you that Glenn Whelan, you know, he takes a lot of flack from Irish fans, and he gets blamed a lot, but he was always a player that I watched, and he, he had a very specific role, and he did it very well, and he did it for... Two different managers at international level. He did it for 300 plus games for Stoke. And it seemed that every season, Tony Pulis had signed a midfielder and everyone said, well, that's Glenn Whelan gone. And then 12 months later, Whelan is still there and the newly signed midfielder is on the bench. Okay, I'm not going to compare him to, to Xavi or Rodri, but the player that he most reminded me of in that role was Neil Lennon at Celtic when Martin O'Neill signed him. He signed him to play a very specific role in front of the back three, linking up with midfield. And he got a lot of flack from Celtic fans for not scoring enough, for not getting forward enough, for maybe not justifying his fee. But when he wasn't there, if he wasn't in the starting 11, if he was injured or suspended, you kind of notice what he did a lot more because there would be an incident where an opposition player would break through or a pass would go awry and suddenly defence under pressure. And you think, you know what? Neil Lennon would have stopped that. Now, like I say, goalkeepers tend to get over-criticised for conceding goals because, you know, that's the, the focus is on them when a team does concede. Um, an opposition player broke through or, went, as I say, when a ball maybe put a lot of pressure on the Irish defence. Glenn Whelan was the one who was blamed. But I, like, since he's, well, I don't know if he's officially retired from the national side or if he's just not being called into the squad anymore. You do kind of notice those holes and there hasn't really been a player to replace him to perform that role. Uh, you know, he played more than 200 times in the Premier League and to do that, but you don't play that many games you know, in the Premier League, if you're an average or if you're a bad player, you do it because you're a very good player. And I think Glenn Whelan is a very good player. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And it's interesting on Man City team, as you said, those guys. It was a shame Kevin Keegan was under pressure to find they didn't give more of them an opportunity. Uh, Stephen Paisley was also there. And then coming later on the fringes, um, Kieran Westwood, who eventually then declared for a sentence. 
and uh, also Stephen Earle then came a couple of seasons later then as well. They really could have been one of those Irish teams if they all made the grave. They all went separate ways. I think Glenn is typical of that, what I was mentioning about Steve McPhail earlier, about that he had to adapt his game underage level when he was coming through Man City and then when he signed for Sheffield Wednesday Glenn was a box-to-box player and you know anybody who's followed Glenn's later career you'd say that he's a box-to-box player they're like no he he was only in front of the back four but that was the role that he had to play with as you said Giovanni Trapp Tony Martin O'Neill Tony Pulis similar types of managers with similar types of mindsets and how they set their team up uh, in many ways but he did fend off people and I think we've got a number of players that have done that in the Premier League over the course of the year, and I, I think that's what's really interesting about when we look when we kind of take a step back and look at that now 200 players, well, 197 in the first 30 seasons, what their contribution was because I think we've we've had some outstanding players, and I think if you were to gather so many different people from different nations who've um, observed the Premier League, I definitely think some of the Irish players are in the conversation for some of the greatest ever players like Roy Keane, Robbie Keane, Damien Duff, Shea Given. Possibly Richard Dunn and Seamus Coleman too. And then I think there's other guys like Glenn, like John Walters, who, you know, were integral to their team. Steve Carr, Steve Finnan. You know, you can go through a lot and Dennis Irwin, like that, for me, Dennis Irwin is the best left back in, of the Premier League era. Like, you know, I know a lot of people say Ashley Cole and stuff. And I'm sorry, like, Dennis what a bargain though, isn't it? Like, Only. <laughs> he had everything game intelligence, right foot, left foot, free kick specialist. I'm not sure if you saw the, that movie Looking for Eric yeah. and he says what was your favourite goal and he says I don't have a favourite goal I have a favourite pass and he plays a blind pass from uh, into Irwin because he knew Irwin was going to be in the position I just that game intelligence I think we when the players get to the Premier League level we know they can play football we know they're athletically elite we know that they're you know ready for that level but what makes them that little bit special and it's the game intelligence I think that that really sets them apart we have someone like John Walters who run through a wall for somebody like and he did again and again and again and but I think it's those people like Roy and like Robbie and, and Shay and Duffer like that had that little bit extra maybe and um, and I think that's what we're looking for now in the modern players and I think when we talk about someone like Joe Hodge who sees a bigger picture and um, when he gets on the ball we look at Nathan Collins he sees a bigger picture Nathan Collins is a modern centre back. Andrew Bamadelli is a modern day centre back. You know they are in the mould of a Rio Ferdinand, and that's what's really exciting about that because I don't think we can typify Irish players because we're producing so many different types of players, and that's the way it should be. Like you know, England created this thing, the England DNA, a few years ago in terms of trying to establish what is an English player look like, and they didn't really come up with an answer because. Suddenly they had a whole generation of Mason Mount and Connor Gallagher and who were very different from a, a Nicky Butt or a Michael Carrick, like for example, like, you know, and you look at Kevin Zeffi, who's already mentioned, like completely different type of player than we've ever had before in the how he plays football. Um if anybody ever could see any some of his YouTube clips for Ireland or ages, really, really exciting player. And I think the next generation of players coming through the Premier League We'll hopefully see a lot more of that, but I do think there are players, as I said, that have played in the Premier League who we probably should appreciate more. I'll just throw one out there, Rory Delap. He's in the top five of appearances in the, for Irish players in the Premier League. And Rory was, again, people are known for his long throwing, but he was a really good player. 
And very unfortunate that he was in an era with Roy Keane, Matt Holland, Mark Kinsley, Lee Carsley, Stephen Reid. So he couldn't really get into the team at international level. But he had a great Premier League career. And I think you have a lot more examples of that spread across. And I think sometimes we probably should appreciate that a little bit more of what we have contributed as a nation to this global league as it is now. I think Roy Delap suffered a little bit in that he was kind of a, a jack of all trades and maybe not a master of none. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean he mightn't have been a master on the level of, say, as you mentioned, Roy Keane or, or Matt Holland or, or Kinsella. And there was a lot more to his game than just, you know, long throws. He played in that Stoke City team. Uh, still highly regarded as one of their best players in their Premier League uh, history. He was highly regarded as a coach with Derby, and now he's working, you know, in the setup at Stoke. And if we had a, a player like that available to us at the moment, a player with that kind of Premier League experience, he'd be the first name on the on the team sheet. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the book maybe can remind people of some of these guys, like Alan Moore, for example. Alan Moore was in that Middlesbrough team that had Ravinelli and Janino and so Alan had a good few injuries, but. If you remember, like Alan was actually accepted by someone like Ravinelli because he was so technically gifted. And he also had that toughness from him, maybe from his fingers background, I don't know. Like, But Alan was incredibly clever football brain. And that will give you a yard of pace or put you in a position quicker than anything, really. If, if you can you know, foresee something or move into a position before somebody. If someone like Fabrizio Ravinelli, who's playing the Champions League with Juventus and comes to Middlesbrough and then he wants to play with Alan Moore. I think that says a lot about Alan Moore, you know, and where he fit in. And and we've had other guys on the other end of the spectrum who've just had good careers because they've grafted it out and they've showed resilience. Someone like Stephen Ward, who was a forward at Bohemians, went across, got transformed into a left-back, played 50 times for Ireland at left-back. Like, you know, like, like kudos to Stephen for... For what he's done, what he did in his career, he's just recently retired. Uh, super guy, um, and uh, really deserves any plaudits that he gets for for sticking it out. Like he played in two European Championships for Ireland, um, and I think we have a good mix of people like that. But again, I still think that over the course of the Premier League era, we've had people who have been really integral to their teams. I think if you if you look at the 2002 World Cup squad. I think there's something like five or six of those players were Premier League captains at the time. If you look at Kenny Cunningham, yep. um, Matt Holland, Roy Keane, Steve Staunton, oh, I'm sure I'm missing a couple, but like I remember looking at the yes, time. I think would have been captain of Charlton as well. Charlton, yeah. Yeah, so it's quite quite incredible number. Okay, they're not all Manchester United and Liverpool's, but it, it doesn't really matter. They're still Premier League clubs like you know and these guys are selected to be the leaders of these clubs Um, I think that's quite significant and I think after that World Cup I think we had a genuine case to say that we had possibly four of the best players in the world at that time maybe in the top 50 of the world Roy Keane Robbie Keane Shea Given and Damien Duff like I think they were all around kind of their kind of prime at that at that stage and we will we get back to there yeah hopefully we will but like let's embrace what what we did have as well and I think I'd like to think the book recognises that in, in, in some ways Just give a mention to Claire Shine's book In terms of the experience of writing that book I mean an awful lot of topics uncovered in that book Claire comes across an amazing inspirational person here to tell her story in such a frank and honest way 
I met Claire um, first time. I worked with the women's under 19s in 2014. We went to the European Championships. Um, we got to the semi-finals that year uh, under Dave Connell and Claire was the lead striker. She scored in the opening game against Spain, one nil win. Um, and Claire was part of that team, incredibly talented team. Um, Katie McCabe, Sarah Rowe, Megan Connolly, Savannah McCarthy, Chloe Mustaki, Kiva Keenan. I think there's something like nine have gone on to win senior caps. But Claire, for me, I always viewed Claire as the most natural goal scorer that we've had since Olivia O'Toole. And that's high praise because Olivia was some player. Like obviously she's our record goal scorer of all time. But I think Claire naturally is just so gifted as, as a player. So I kind of knew her through the years and then, um, she contacted me, I think it was, was at the end of 2019 and, said she was she was interested in uh, telling her story of going through things she'd she'd um, attempted suicide and she was going through a really di- uh, difficult time with depression and and drinking and stuff and uh, she'd come through it at that period of time wanted to talk to her so I said you know have a think about over Christmas because once you come out and talk publicly publicly about this this will kind of open the door and you can't kind of put it back in the bottle. It's kind of, once you come out there with that, it's it's a quite a big thing. So she came back to me in the January and said, look, I definitely want to do it. So we've done a couple of media interviews and uh, Claire spoke so well and we've done a few different bits and pieces. And then Claire brought back into the Ireland set up. I was working with the Ireland team then, the women's national team at the time. And uh, she was in great form. She started away, our first competitive start away to Montenegro. And then during that camp, COVID hit and... Uh, it was the worst thing for Claire. Um, she went in a downward spiral. She was playing for Glasgow City at the time and kind of relapsed. And she attempted uh, again second time on her life and went missing. And there was a national search in Scotland to find her. And it took her a lot to come through that. I always thought there was a lot more to Claire's story um, when, when we'd done the first stuff. And then when the second thing happened, we had a conversation. And Claire basically said, during the recovery process... There was no books or materials that she could turn to for inspiration from a female sports star that had been through something similar. Or And basically said, OK, well, let's write a book about it. Like, let's be that person that can inspire young girls to talk about these taboo subjects of isolation, depression and peer pressure and alcohol and drug abuse. Very tough topics to tackle. Claire was so open about it, quite cathartic for her, I think, the process maybe, but a pleasure to work with, and I think the book, uh, Scoring Goals in the Dark, which came out in June, got long listed for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year, which was great uh, recognition, and it's great to have all of those things, but the real thing for Claire and I was really just connecting with young people that they can read her story and, and see okay, she tripped up there and she got back on her feet and this is an inspirational story because it's so raw and so true. Like Claire's only 28 and it's incredible to think the amount that she's been through in her life already and and what she can still, and what she still has ahead of her. She's a really bright girl and I think she's um, she's got a great future ahead of her in many ways, even though she's not playing football anymore. But the book was delivered in terms of trying to be that source material for uh, girls not just girls but mainly girls um to see that you're, you're not alone in feeling the feeling feelings that you have and you know coming through the pitfalls that might might be in their way like. 
It's an inspirational piece, Gareth. Well done on it. And also to Claire as well for telling the story because I think it's going to help so many people here, regardless of being sporting life, but in general life in general, like it's okay not to be okay. Like the, the, the topics, the underlying themes in this book, you know, it's just an inspirational read and well done for uh, being involved in it. Yeah, thanks very much. And it, it, it's great to hear that, you know, uh, that as, as a sports book, people can read it and, and kind of enjoy it in that way. Like, okay, just start material in it, like, you know, but ultimately it's an uplifting story that Claire's, you know, she's, she's doing great now and she, she's, she's in a really good place. And I think it's a story of, I mentioned the word resilience about Premier League footballers. This is real resilience of what Claire's been through and what she continues to, to have to go through in, in our, in our life. And, you know, it's privileged that Claire shared her story with me and I, I think I, hopefully you've done a good job and the people like it and connect with it. And necessarily if uh, anybody's struggling for Christmas presents this year, there's two books out in the bookstores now for them. Absolutely. Oh, well done, uh, Gareth. Cheers. Uh, Gareth, the book is on the long list for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year. That's a phenomenal achievement. I just want to congratulate you on that. When you thought about that, and well, what was that like? Yeah, very surreal. Um, to be honest, um, you have kind of little goals that you set with projects like this, and that was definitely a goal, but not one I really kind of thought was achievable, to be honest, because it's something just as someone who just devours sports books every year, like I would always buy the top books on that list every year. So you know, going back to Paul Kimmage when he when he won it, um, I think it was nineteen eighty nine, maybe one. I could be mistaken with the year. Our fever pitch with Nick Hornby, you know, um, grew up as an Arsenal fan, like Nick, like that's kind of <laughs> the type of the book that appealed to me. And it was nineteen ninety when Rough Ride won it, and ninety two for for fever pitch. To be on that list is just incredible. Um, just got in an email the night before they announced the list. Uh, our publisher sent an email and said we're on the list, and it was something I was. I had in my mind, I knew the list was coming and I was just, you know, seeing if could make it or not, you know, and it's just incredible. So, some great books on that list. That was some I've already had. Suzanne Rack's book about women's football, um, Matt Dickinson's one about Manchester United 1999, Jonathan Wilson's one, Two Brothers with the Charlton Brothers. Um, uh, I've read a couple of those already. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, we didn't make the short list, but look, to make the long list is again one hell of an achievement and uh, again, hopefully it just spreads the message to more people that this book is out there for people to connect with and uh, Claire's story resonates with more people. How is Claire doing these days? Yeah, Claire's doing great. She she decided to hang up the boots with at professional levels. She was finding it uh, quite tough. I suppose the demands of the professional game were probably getting a little bit too much for her at the moment. I wouldn't be surprised if she came back to the Women's National League maybe and played... But at the moment, she wants to go and explore different things. At the moment, she's gonna she's doing a little bit of media stuff. She's doing uh, a lot of talking uh, events and schools and stuff, um, uh, which is quite a natural fit for her. She's she's a really good talker. Speaks well about um her journey or all these different uh, topics that are covered in the book. Um, she's in a really good place, and I, I think you'll hear a lot more Claire over over the coming years and uh, in a very positive way. That's excellent news. Uh, I do remember when she was reported missing in Scotland and I genuinely did fear the worst being familiar with the, the history of her mental health and to see how she's doing now, where she is in terms of her mental health and, you know, the work that she's 
she's done to to recover from from that place. Um, it is inspirational. And look, with the World Cup next year, we might see her as part of the the studio analysis with RTE. Or she's going to be involved with the the Women's Cup final on the weekend uh, with RTE. So um, you know, again, I hope she does get a lot more media work and. And uh, she's she's doing some courses as well to help with her public speaking and to help people as well because quite naturally because she's what she's been through in a very public way she's had a lot of people who reach out to her on quite a regular basis and she wants to be qualified enough to be able to help those people so I said a lot more for Claire to give like just and it's come back to the away days a little bit like when footballers finish around their early thirties and if you consider like. There's a whole life still to live after that, like, so it's sometimes we kind of just close the chapter as if they're done, like, you know, but it's, you know, Derek Farley, for example, he said he's gone on and, you know, retrained to be his lister. Um, but there's other guys that have gone on and had other great careers in different guises. And, and this is, there's no reason why this can't transfer to the women's uh, side of things now, as, as Claire is, is proven. So, um, but I think the ethos there, and that message that Mark said that it's okay not to be okay. Um, I think that's the real thing behind Claire Claire's story and um what she wants to share. It's only really been in the last few years where there's been a focus on what happens to players after the game. Damien Lauder's book, when the world stops watching, speaking with sports people who have retired in their mid thirties and you still have a lot of living to do, but having everything you've known that you know that regimented training schedule, being told where to where to be at what time and even what to eat, and not having that anymore, and how that affects you as a, as a person. John Giles' autobiography opened with a great line. I was taught uh, I joined the the world of football at the age of seventeen, and I left it twenty years later at the age of seventeen. I don't have that exactly right, but that he he had just lived in that bubble of being a professional footballer for twenty years and when he finally left it, didn't know how he was going to live the rest of his life. And I think books like um, like When the World Stops Watching and maybe a little surprisingly, Paul Merson's autobiography, um, How Not to Be a Professional Footballer, have shone a light on the effect that retirement has on athletes. There's a really good podcast from Merson actually on BBC's website where he just walks, goes for a walk through a forest and talks about his his career and his life after football. Uh, it's, it's really good, actually. I really recommend it. Yeah, there's some really interesting stories. Keith Gillespie's autobiography, the Danny MacDonald yeah. wrote, is uh, excellent as well. Yeah, super. Yeah. Really great insights there. And um, obviously, the, the one that broke the mold, really, wasn't it? Paul McGrath's one with Vincent Hogan. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a fantastic book. Like, you know, it's, it's the real kind of go-to one, isn't it? And when starting with Claire, like, that was kind of the book that I kind of had in mind to, I remember Vincent saying before that when he was doing the book with Paul that I'm not going to do this unless I get full access and we, you know, everything is on the table and quite similar with Claire, you know, she opened up and that's what made the book and to have, as you say, those people that have different experiences later on in life, there's almost this kind of cliche that with a footballer, if you, you either go into coaching or you go into the media, but that's not the case. They can transfer their skills to so many different things. And we're starting to see that a lot more now. Of It's quite common in rugby, actually, where um, they go on to very high level jobs of executive roles and in, in different occupations. I think there's no reason why that can't happen in football. I think John Walters 
touches on it in the chapter in the way days. He he ran for the the vacancy for the chairman of the PFA and in, in England, and he came quite close. He got down to the final three. Gareth Farley was uh, kind of in the, in the mix for that as well. Uh, uh, interesting enough, but John is quite open about the fact of the aftercare for players in the not just the Premier League but across the English tiers is just not good enough in his view, and it needs to change. I think there's a responsibility to an extent on the Premier League and the clubs, but also on the individual. As you say, they live in this bubble where they're pampered a lot of times at the top level. Um, and I think if you look at American sports and how quickly um, people go bankrupt and divorces and, you know, get involved in betting, uh, gambling and stuff like that, like, and you do see it some, somewhat in, in, uh, in, in England. We've obviously had a lot of high profile cases in terms of Paul Gascoigne or Kenny Sampson, Paul Merson, as you mentioned. Um, but there has to be more, responsibility given back to the players I think of taking ownership of their own stuff and I do think that is happening a little bit more now even though that the players don't want for anything which they shouldn't in many ways their focus should be just focusing on the game the days of uh, someone filling out their passport or booking a dentist appointment I'm not sure they really exist anymore I want to thank guys for joining us on the podcast the discussion on the, the two books Away Days and uh, Scoring Goals in the Dark this is absolutely fascinating. Oh, pleasure. Yeah. With Halloween just behind us and some places already have their lights up for Christmas. If you know someone who enjoys sports books, I'd recommend both of them. If you want to contact Gareth, you can reach him on Twitter at Gareth Maher. You can follow Mark at Hawkeye Psychic or you can reach out to me at Irish underscore abroad. Gareth, once again, thank you very much for coming on the episode. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take care, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.